Welcome to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. I'm your host, life and business coach, Kate Hawley. I work with entrepreneurs and creative change makers who value depth, impact, and purpose. Many of my clients are like me. They dream of creating prosperity through the value they provide, but they also want equity for others and sustainability for our planet. The scarcity mindset of our culture tells us that this dream isn't possible, that we are not enough, that we don't have enough, that there is not enough for everyone, and that's just the nature of reality. But really, it's just the nature of predatory capitalism. I'm glad you're here because we are going to prove that sad story false and make better meaning to build our future with. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Space Beyond Scarce podcast. We're here today with a guest who probably needs no introduction, Tara McMullen. So Tara is the host of the podcast, What Works. She's a writer, podcaster, and producer. For over 13 years, she's been studying small business owners, how they live, how they work, what influences them, and what they hope for the future. Her podcast, What Works, is about navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. I am so excited to talk to Tara today. I listen to her podcast every single week and in its completion. So I'm a mega fan. Thank you for being here, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to the end of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I was just looking through in preparation for this interview. I was looking back to see if there were episodes I had not finished or, you know, which ones have I not listened to that maybe I should catch up on. And I couldn't find any for a very long time. So I have listened to them in their completion, at least I think all of this year. And I know that you've made some pivots and some changes to your podcast. So I think since you made those changes, I've been a very avid listener. Well, awesome. I'm so thrilled to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it's helpful to know when you make, I'm sure making changes is a little bit unnerving at times. So. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, the changes that I've made have requires so much extra work. It's work that I really, really enjoy, but it's a lot more time going into each episode now. And so every time I hear from somebody that they're really loving the direction the show's taken, it makes me very, very happy. Yeah, it's very impressive. It's really at the level of production quality that you would expect from one of our favorite NPR shows, right? Like, <laughs> um, you know, I'm, yeah, totally. It really is wonderful. And I know also that you are a co-founder, co-owner of a podcast production company, right? Yeah, yeah. My husband and I have a company called Yellow House Media that helps small business owners put their podcasts out into the world. Yes. Well, it's one of my life goals to be able to work with you all and uh, in the next iteration of this podcast when we're ready. So as you can see, I'm in my very fancy podcasting closet right now. I mean, the best of the best use are closets. So you are in super good company. I love it. Awesome. Well, okay. So we're going to dive in today and hopefully have a, a, a conversation that stems some fruits out of this topic that I think we both share a fascination with, which is what is this economy and where is it going? But before we dive into that, let's touch base on this question I like to ask all of my guests, which is about scarcity mindset, which is kind of the jumping off point for this podcast. 
So when you hear that phrase, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I think this is such a great place to start. So to me, scarcity mindset is about a lack of creativity and it's a lack of perceived choice. And I think that scarcity as a concept is often, is most often an illusion. I'm not saying that there's not places and, and groups and all of those things where there isn't an actual scarcity, but most often in, from my perspective and the way I think about scarcity, it is less about there not being options and more about an inability to see those options or an inability to access those options. And so whether that's something that an individual can take care of or whether that's something a community needs to take care of or even a larger entity than that, you know, that there are different ways of handling that or and and finding the abundance in a situation. But I think when when I think about kind of moving away, shifting away from a scarcity mindset, it is toward perceiving more options and being creative about what those options are. Getting back to like the access piece, like if you, you can't access something that you don't know is there, right? And so you can't even uh, advocate for change or advocate for yourself if you don't know what you're trying to access. So yeah, so it's creativity, it's options, and it's training your mind and your eyes and your ears and your speech to be able to notice options and creative solutions all around you. Mm. Yeah, I love that definition. I love that description. It's one of the things that I'll often say about the work I'm doing is that to me, it feels kind of like opening a portal because it feels like, okay, well, I know that if you're looking at the evidence all around you, you're going to find evidence that yes, there is scarcity and it can feel very much like that's just how reality is. So it does take a bit of imaginative rigor, right? To be able mm -hmm. to imagine something that you can't see right in front of you that could still be just as possible and true. Yes. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. All right. Would it be fair to say, about you and your work that you are critical of some components of late stage capitalism. <laughs> yes, I think that would be beyond fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, then, like, I'd love to jump off from there then. Perfect. Um, you know, I never know how people like to self-identify that way, but that seems to be true when I listen to your work. So in that case, can you say a little bit about the origin of that for you? Is that something that you've just always been that way and thought that way? Or was there kind of an experience or a, even an awakening that you went through? Yeah. So thank you for asking this, because this is something that I don't personally unpack on my show or in my writing, or I haven't yet, but is uh, sort of a story that I, and I think it's because I haven't quite landed on how I want to tell the story. So this will be an experiment. I have always had values that are very oriented to social justice and, and collective action, and they come from sort of a social justice gospel background in terms of religion. That said, I didn't have anyone in my life as a kid or as a teenager who was actually 
acting on those values in a way that I could follow or in a way that I could learn more. So while I had those values, I wasn't participating in any kind of radical culture. I wasn't participating in any kind of social justice efforts. It was stuff that I really believed. It was stuff that I would get angry about when I encountered things that were counter to what I, I believed in, but I didn't know. I didn't, I just didn't know. Like that's the biggest, like that's the, yeah. my, the headline of my like pre 28 years old life is I didn't know. And <laughs> it's very often I look back on high school and college even where I did have some more connections to more radical culture there. But I look back on that and I think, oh, I missed out on so much time. I missed out on so many resources I could have taken advantage of. But, you know, I was in central Pennsylvania. I was in a highly conservative township. My family was moderately conservative. And I just, I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and so once I got more into internet culture, so starting in late college and then, you know, all throughout my adulthood, I was exposed to more and more and more what the actual actions and structure and platforms of my values looked like in the real world. And so that's when I began to have language and ideas and and just and questions about like what does this actually look like for me and how how does it look like you know for me conducting myself in the world or running my business. So that started to kind of wake up at the beginning of my 30s, I guess. And then I would say that I got really caught up in the hype of online business and abundance as a very individualist pursuit um, mm -hmm. in my mid 30s. And I, again, it was sort of like, I didn't know any better because I still wasn't that integrated into actually expressing my values. And then 2016 happened. And like a lot of people got a huge wake up call. It wasn't that I didn't know that, that there were people who believed things that were completely different than what I believed. Obviously I did, but what sort of accelerated after the 2016 election was the visibility of more radical information online. And so now I had this amazing wealth of resources right in front of me. You know, part of that whole I didn't know thing was that like, I didn't even know what to be searching for. I just assumed this is the way it is. These are my values. They don't really line up, but what are you going to do? And then suddenly, to be presented with resources that allowed me to go down all sorts of rabbit holes. From 2016 on then, it's just been sort of a like a snowball effect of, you know, you learn one thing, you realize that this particular institution is just really messed up, or this particular belief is totally not in alignment with what I actually believe or what my values actually are. And so, uh, you know, my friend Kate, who's truly my sort of mentor in radicalness, she, you know, she would pin my radicalization, I think, to 2020, but it's been happening for a really long time. And it was just a matter of like getting to that point where the snowball is big enough that everybody can see, oh, 
Tara has some opinions. <laughs> and so I think, you know, what a lot of people are seeing today are those opinions that have been given new language and new structure and new information to share with others. So that's, sorry, that was very rambly, but that's the story. Yeah, no, it's actually, it's really helpful because some people I think aren't as clear on, I know there really was kind of a shift and here's where it started. And I love your description that there was sort of an underlying value system there all along, but it didn't have the right visible options, kind of like what we were saying about scarcity mindset. Those options just didn't seem to be around. And then you started to see them. Yeah. I wonder, one of the questions that was coming up as you were describing this shift, and I've since I have been listening to your podcast for a number of years, maybe less frequently back in the day than I do now, but I know that it did change a bit and definitely seems to have become more explicit in mm -hmm. a political value system. Was that scary for you to do? So going way back in my work, so like in my early blogging days, I had a pretty explicit political agenda then. Again, it didn't, I didn't have the, the best language. I didn't understand the structures even that I was pushing back against as well as I do now. So it's, I had experience with kind of sharing those kinds of opinions already online. And then, you know, I had gotten just super focused on marketing, marketing my own stuff, marketing my own business, but also teaching other people about marketing and then exploring business strategy and all, you know, shapes and forms. And that was what my business was all about. And so using that as a focal point made sense. And while I think there was, there are certainly times throughout that sort of middle period where there was an undercurrent of my values and, and political opinion, it was not front and center. And so at the end of 2021, when I really just stepped all the way back from my business, I didn't shut it down, but it feels like I shut it down and I'm just sort of doing my own thing now. <laughs> it meant that I didn't have to think about marketing or sales as the goal for the content that I was creating. And so I felt like, well, if this is what I'm thinking about and this is what I'm, what I want to be writing about, like, I'm just going to do it. And so, no, it wasn't scary. I mean, there've been times when I put a podcast episode out and I'm like, okay, uh, this one might be too much. I'm not sure <laughs> people are going to be on board with this. Uh, like next week's episode uh, on getting paid brings the Marxist theory pretty strong, <laughs> but overall, leaning into the political side of things, the economic side of things, the theory side of things isn't, hasn't been scary for me because the worst thing that people could do would just be to stop listening or to stop reading. And I haven't seen that. I see more downloads, more subscribers, less unsubscribers, higher open rate, more traffic. So that's been really heartening. And so it wasn't scary. And also it's actually done better or it's doing better than a lot of my stuff for the last couple of years. So that's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I was wondering about that because uh, I'm, I think I'm one of those people who just can't, 
I can't help myself, right? I, I have to be talking about the things that I care about. Yes. And so I don't have a super strategic podcast even, you know, like I, mm-hmm. it's not focused on what would be the simplest way to get people to buy something because it's, it's also a creative endeavor and a, you know, it's a visionary endeavor, I suppose, but it does feel like it goes a little counter to a lot of the traditional advice about how you should get very simple and strategic and focused on this, you know, very intimate strategy that people are currently thinking about, right? Because some of these bigger systemic issues, people care about them, but it's not the problem they're waking up with in the morning and mm-hmm. saying, oh gosh, how am I going to solve this? And who should I pay to solve this for me? So a question that I am, this is maybe just an open space that I feel like we're in, and it's maybe a cultural pivot I feel like we're in, but I've mm-hmm. been really curious about this intersection and how it impacts business. So I hear you saying that it's impacted your, you see that you're getting more engagement with your audience, but I've also heard you say that part of the reason you're doing this is because you're not as focused on selling things. Mm -hmm. Is it your perspective that pursuing a more visionary and creative and kind of political exploration as you are, is that a strategy that you think will not lead to more sales if you wanted to sell something? Or do you think it's possible that there's a business model where that's very supportive? Yeah, I I totally do not think that the content I'm putting out now would hurt my sales if I actually was selling something. So Yes. And to make that clear, I'm not selling anything. That's why yeah. I'm making no money. No, <laughs> yeah. which is not entirely true. I'm making money in very different ways now. I'm doing freelance yeah. writing. I've got a book coming out. I'm doing some work with a company that I've worked with for years and years. And that's enough to pay my salary right now and a modest salary. And I'm not interested in hustling to make more than that salary at this point. I'm doing a lot of personal burnout recovery, a lot of mental health recovery, a lot of just like letting it all out (laughs) recovery. And so I'm not selling anything, but I feel 110% confident that if I put out a business coaching offer tomorrow in my newsletter, all the spots would be filled within 24 hours. Like I have there is no doubt in my mind, which also gives me a lot of momentum and confidence in my ability to say what I want to say too, because I know there are people out there just waiting to talk with me about these things, you know, and I've turned business away. I have sort of like a, an open contact form on my work with me page right now. And, um, you know, I've had people say, you know, can I work with you on this? Can I pay you for an hour of your time? And the answer is no, not right now. I'm sorry, I'll let you know, Um, but no. So let me take myself out of this for a second. I don't think that focusing on marketing strategy as it's been done, say, from mm, 2015, 2014 through say 2021, maybe even to now, is the way to make more money. In fact, everyone I know who's marketing the same way they've been marketing for the last six, seven years, they're not doing so well. And the people who are getting a lot of traction are the people who are saying, no, what is it that I want to put out in the world? What is my creative vision? 
what is going to light my fire? What am I passionate about? What will I stand for? And I know that sounds, man, that sounds so utopian, right? Like, oh, we can just run our businesses speaking our minds. And that's not entirely what I mean. But I do think that I have seen a backlash and just a lack of effectiveness when it comes to sort of the tried and true content marketing strategy tactics and techniques. I think that the market is completely burnt out on it. They can see a sales funnel coming from a mile away. They can see an automated email sequence before it even hits their inbox. Like they are the the consumers online, whether they're in the business space or not, they're super savvy and they're tired of our bull crap. <laughs> and <laughs> so they want to engage with something that's actually good. And I think that's what I would encourage anyone to focus on. It's what we work on our with our podcasting clients at Yellow House about. It's like, what can we do to make this podcast really good? Because that's going to be the best thing for you for your business. What is it that we can do to make this podcast stand out so that it's not just marketing, but that it is like this this intellectual asset that you have and you can mold and you can shape and it can evolve. And so that's where I see the culture shift in the marketing space happening. And by shift, I mean, not so much that people are changing as there are a lot of people becoming less relevant by the day because they're not changing. And there are people becoming more relevant by the day because they are embracing creating quality and they're still few and far between. So it's not too late to get on. It's never too late, <laughs> by the way, to get on the quality bandwagon. Mm, I love every part of your answer. It is a breath of fresh air and really good to hear. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. So I have a question that might be a really fun question or it might be a really overwhelming question. We'll see. <laughs> Okay. That's <laughs> um, like a warning. I know, right? Um, the question is, since you've been exploring this idea of the 21st century economy and how to make it, what, to, to survive it with our humanity intact, that's mm -hmm. how you describe it, right? What I want to know is your vision. If we could wave the magic wand and say, okay, Tara, what should we do with the 21st century economy? What's what are our next best moves? What should this look like if it if it aligned with surviving it with our humanity intact? Yeah, great question. Very overwhelming, but also fun. <laughs> so yeah, all of the above. Um, so there's sort of I think that this kind of territory can get so overwhelming because there is so much momentum in the systems of power as they are in the ins institutions and structures that we just sort of take for granted. There's so much about our economy today that is fairly new, but yet feels monolithic and hegemonic and that we could never change. And so on that note, I think part of what my vision is for the economy and a more human economy is to treat the economy as a work in progress. I'm kind of borrowing from Rebecca Solnit's uh, Hope in the Dark and sort of like existentialist philosophy there, where the idea is 
yeah, you can acknowledge that there's some pretty crappy stuff in our economy that the that people's needs aren't being met that there are opportunities we could be pursuing that we are not there are problems that we are just ignoring and also that doesn't mean it can't change and so acknowledging the ability to make change and for those institutions to not be there any longer is a huge part of how i find hope and how I think about the future. So for me, my vision is less of a concrete, this is how I think things should be, or this is how I would like things to be. And more along the lines of what are all the different assumptions that I can question? What are all the different assumptions that we can question? What are all the things that we take for granted as this is the best way to do stuff that we can say, but what if it's not? What if there's a better way to do stuff? What if a universal basic income is actually the way to create the most productive, the wealthiest in real terms, the most abundant economy that we could have? And what if there is plenty of money to pay everyone a universal basic income? What if we have a works progress administration for the 21st century. What if we have a Green New Deal? What are all those things that seem impossible, that seem utopic, that seem idealistic, but in fact are just as plausible as anything that we're doing today? So for me, the vision, as I said, is just all about noticing as many different things that we can question and present options for and think about even just asking questions what my sort of driving theme and motivation for this year is around asking questions my goal this year is not to have answers it is to be willing to ask questions that nobody else is going to ask in my space and so i think that's right in line with reimagining the 21st century economy from a human perspective is just being willing to ask the questions, to think creatively and say, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. Great. I love it. And so my next question is around what you see as the main challenges that we're up against in the vision. And what I heard you say, I heard you say some really wonderful specifics that are probably part of your vision, but you phrased them in a very open way, right? Which is, <laughs> what if there was universal basic income? Right. And yeah, we, of course, and we don't know because it's not a dogma. It's an experiment. We, right. based on current research, that seems like it would be a great idea. And it seems like it would solve a lot of our challenges and we would have to experiment with it to actually see if it solves the problems we hope it would. So in thinking about what are some of the challenges that you think we're up against either to the achievement of some of those ideas or even to this state of being where we're asking those questions and being willing mm -hmm. to create change? I mean, it's probably too flippant to say Republicans, right? Um, <laughs> no, that's, that's a, my first answer too. So <laughs> like I'm, I'm Mitch McConnell. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think I think the challenges to me all boil down to momentum, to inertia rather, that measuring GDP, for instance, is the only way 
that we know how to measure the economy. And measuring inflation is the only way we know how to measure the relative value of a dollar. And, you know, all of these measurements that we have that, you know, the stock market goes up and down on. Well, and the stock market is another one that we could say is an obstacle. But all of, all of those measurements to me are obstacles to real change because real change requires different metrics, right? Like we're not gonna measure the effectiveness of a UBI on GDP. Universal basic income is not gonna get measured on gross domestic product, right? It might improve gross domestic product. It might not. I don't care. But right. does it improve people's quality of life? And how are you going to measure that? How are you going to measure the economic effects then of people's improved quality of life? What does that measurement look like? So I think, you know, and I don't think measurement is everything. Like, I, I don't think everything valuable needs to be or can be measured. And I think that's a, an obstacle to that sort of the meta yeah. obstacle there. But I think the numbers that our economy seems to hinge on, that our, our politics seems to hinge on, are a big part of the problem. Because each one of those numbers represents an assumption about how an economy works. And each one of those numbers currently is based on some form of exploitation or control over others. And to me, that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure to you that's a problem. And so I think that really defining our goals is a huge part of as a country, as a nation, as a global community, understanding what changes need to be made because and so that actually saying that kind of reminds me of this idea from a book called how to make sense of any mess it's by a woman an information architect named abby covert and she says the first step in any project is defining what constitutes good and what constitutes bad like what is a good result and what is a not good result and all of our results today are based on these assumptions. And we're saying, oh, that's a good result, right? Low unemployment, that's a good result. Uh, low inflation, that's a good result. Higher GDP, constant growth, that's a good result. Yeah, the, They might be good results, but I don't think there's been any sort of consensus on what that actually means for the economy, we just get sucked in to those numbers. And we're not looking at what a good result could be from a number of different perspectives. So, so actually defining and creating consensus around what is a good result, I think is an obstacle. It's I think it's a surmountable obstacle. And I think interestingly too, that you know when we talk about economic policies really progressive economic policies are widely popular among the american yeah. population it's shocking to me how some of yeah. these policies poll um and then you know you look at our election results and you're like do you know that you believe this 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 and this and the person you just <laughs> voted for believes yeah. all of that stuff is the work of the devil like come on <laughs> yeah. um so I think there actually is a consensus 
on what we want in this country, but we don't have we don't have a way of talking to each other that actually allows us to make good on those things. And so that's probably the other obstacle is kind of separating this quest mm -hmm. for a better national economy, a better national environment, a better community within uh, you know, these 50 states and many territories that would allow us to actually realize how much we believe the same things and how progressive those things actually are. Yes, I agree 100% with everything you shared. And it makes me think a bit of one of the anchor points that I have been using a lot in my way of thinking and also just even in my business is Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics. I don't know yeah. if you've read her book. No. Oh, you would, you're going to love it, Tara. It's, <laughs> she's a brilliant economist who basically went, you know, to undergrad for economics and was like, wow, this is horrible. They're asking all the wrong questions, using all the wrong metrics. Can this really be what professional economists are doing? So then she's like, I'll go to grad school. That'll solve it. Went to grad school for economics, same deal. So she basically came out with, a vision that is so simple and it basically defines two goals for the economy. And it's this way of like, these are two things that would be good outcomes. And she draws it like a donut. So the inner circle is the bottom line of the economy is that everybody should, should be safe and have mm -hmm. justice. So that's like people have housing, people have food, etc. And the outer circle of the donut is th these are the limits of our environment. This is what the earth mm -hmm. can tolerate for us to be able to keep living here. So <laughs> those are the two goals, inner circle, outer circle of the donut. She gives a lot of ideas of ways you might think about doing that or different things we have to consider, but she doesn't have a prescription because it's not saying, as, as you were saying earlier, there isn't one right way to do this, but if we could agree on those two goals and get consensus on that, we would do things very differently than how we're yeah. currently doing them. I cannot wait to read this book. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm glad to have uh, introduced it to you. I, it's like so aligned with what you talk about that I just assume you've read it. So I think you're going to really dig it. I'd love to explore for a moment the intersection of small business ownership or entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. which is so much your expertise with some of these ideas of changing the economy. And mm -hmm. I know that you you seem to think about this and talk about this a lot. And I, I do think when I listen to your podcast, you're actually giving some pretty practical, tangible things we can think about of how do we integrate a new way of thinking into the way we do business. And I wonder, I tend to, I'll put myself in this category, but I also know that some of the clients I work with go in this category of folks that are so concerned about the harm that is being caused by the current system mm -hmm. that there's a huge amount of hesitance to participate with the system as it is and it really holds back i think the ability to become financially self-sufficient in business mm -hmm. is this something that you've also seen with some of the people you've worked with uh yeah 100 percent. yes yeah do you have any i guess <laughs> any hot tips or like what are the things what are the things that you uh that you have found really helpful in holding on to integrity and and creating the world you want to live in while also navigating the systems that maybe aren't the systems you want to be part of yeah so 
I think that the first thing I tell people who are kind of questioning, like, well, am I being manipulative? Am I, am I being too aggressive with sales? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? Is the very fact that you are asking that question tells me that you are not the kind of person who would do those things. Now, that's not to say that you haven't stepped out of line or that you haven't followed instructions that had that kind of stuff baked into it. But if your values are to not do harm, are to not be manipulative, are to not be exploitative, then you can, if you allow yourself, find a way to be your brand of successful with what we have to work with right now. So that's the first thing I always tell people. The second thing I would tell people, and this is maybe a little less tested on the ground, but it's what I do, is I, I'm constantly running through power analysis, right? So in every situation where I'm trying to make a decision or where I need to think about, you know, how am I going to price this? How am I going to market this? How am I going to structure this? Is what power do I have? What power do, do they have, whoever I'm engaging with? What are the other kind of power structures around us? And how does that contribute to the way that I think through this particular question? Because as a business owner, there are a lot of ways in which we have less power, but there are also a lot of ways we have power that we don't recognize. I think especially as women business owners, we're so accustomed to not having power over that it's hard to notice all the ways in which you are exerting power over other people in your business. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's another piece. I think the third piece for me is, is that creativity piece again. It's like, all right, I have all of these models that I've seen done before. One of them might be a really great option, but what different thing could I dream up if I put a certain set of constraints, my values, uh, the relationship that I wanna have with other people, the business model that I, I really believe in, what are the different constraints that I could apply to this so that I could go in 100% in a creative mindset and make something new. Think about a way of pricing something that's different from any other way I've priced something before. A way of offering information in a way that I've never offered information. A way of relating to a client in a way I've never related to a client. I mean, that's a, it's a tall order, right? Like I know when people are <laughs> lacking confidence in even selecting the best option, it's really hard to think outside the box. But I think if you give yourself a little bit of time even to just practice thinking creatively, even if it's about your Instagram content or your Twitter content or whatever, Give yourself a little time to think, not what am I supposed to be doing? Not what, what should I be doing? But instead, what could I be doing? What would make me really happy to put out into this mode of communication? I mean, my Instagram content is, a, is I think, a good example of this. It's like, I am not going to play this game. I am not going to play the, the dancey video uh, mm -hmm. game. I'm not going to play the selfie game anymore because I did for a while. I'm not going to do those things. I'm not playing the stories game. But 
this is an interesting creative constraint for me presenting my ideas visually. What does it look like to translate actual ideas into a visual medium? How can I put that on Instagram? And that's been incredibly successful for me. But if you'd ask any Instagram expert, is she doing it right? They would say, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been so effective. So um, yeah, so I think the creativity is another big piece of it. And just knowing what your constraints are. And just to put a little asterisk on that, sometimes knowing where you're willing to compromise. Because mm. the systems that we do operate in are their own constraints. And while there's a lot that we can do to push back against them, there are also some things that we need to consider, like getting our needs met, yeah. that will require us to make some compromises from the ideal. And I think that's okay. Others might disagree with me, but I think it's okay. I think you need to know what your non-negotiables are. You need to know how far you're willing to compromise. Yeah, and just trusting, for me, trusting that the choices I make are grounded in my values and my beliefs because I'm engaged with them on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And if anybody's not currently following Tara on Instagram, it is one of the best accounts I follow. If, you know, if you're having a highly curated Instagram feed, that should be one of the things on there. <laughs> so Tara, I would love to make a little time to talk about the book project that you're working on, because I know you mentioned that you have kind of devoted a lot of your energy this year to a book. And did you say it's coming out the beginning of 2023? No, it's coming out in November. Oh, November of this year. So really yeah. soon. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about what it is and anything that you want folks to know about it? Absolutely. So the title is What Works, a comprehensive framework for reimagining the way we do goal setting or something like that. The publisher came <laughs> up with the subtitle. So I I know it, but it's not 100% in my head yet. But the title is What Works. You can find it wherever books are sold already. It is a comprehensive framework for rethinking the way we do goal setting, starting with examining the cultural forces that have brought us to a place where we think we need to be constantly striving, constantly overcommitting, constantly reaching for more, 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 more. So it starts there. The whole first half of the book is really about deconstructing our shoulds and supposed tos, and not just from a like mindset perspective, although I've, you know, that's, that is a big piece of it, but it's looking at where does that mindset come from? Where do these beliefs yeah. come from? What are the political forces? What are the economic forces? What are the psychological forces that are at play when we are thinking about goal setting or planning or even just the like day-to-day -day choices that we make? So that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is, okay, now you're a blank slate or you're as blank as you're going to get for now. <laughs> How do we create some structure for moving forward? So, you know, a lot of what goal setting culture, productivity culture gives people today is structure, right? We love structure. We need structure. And I, I love structure. But if the way I think about my time and what I'm producing, what I'm creating is through this lens of goal setting that's based on all of these things that I don't believe in, all of these things that I think are actively harmful, then I don't want to structure my work that way. I don't want to structure my life that way. 
so the second half of the book is rebuilding a different form of structure. So I use, well, it starts with personal values and recognizing how personal values can be co-opted by systems and getting back to what your values actually mean to you, as opposed to what the system would like your values to mean to you. So it starts there. And then we add on top of that, your personal vision, your commitments, which are sort of what I sub in for goals. They're not, they're not achievement goals. They're practice oriented goals. So they're all about literally what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, then we look at strategy and then beyond that, how do we approach planning as a learning process, as opposed to like literally a linear step-by-step plan for getting from point A to point B. So that's the book in a nutshell. Mm. I'm so excited for that. I wasn't sure what to expect when I heard you say that it was a new book about goal setting. I thought, yeah, that could be interesting, but I love especially how you described the first half. It's so aligned and feels aligned with what you've already been doing in your newsletters and in your podcast of, yeah, this, you know, this intersection between, you know, lately I've been contemplating, maybe I should just call myself a consciousness raising coach because there's so much There's so much in there to say people have internalized blame for why they're thinking a certain way instead of understanding there's a lot of bigger picture stuff that has really taught you to think that way Mm -hmm. and to blame yourself for it. So I think it's really helpful that you're starting out and teaching people to unpack that a little bit, see the bigger picture. And it does, I think, increase choice, like you were saying in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now we have the option to get more imaginative and say, if you could let go of some of the way of thinking you were taught what's possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I wanted to write a book that had, if not like a clear cut outcome, something that people are constantly asking for. Right. And, and this is a, the process piece of it is something that I've, I've taught for a number of years. And so I, like, I, I wanted there to be that really grounded, tangible piece of it. But I also knew from teaching this stuff, from talking to people, exactly what you said, like of the blame piece and the shame piece and the I'm not good enough piece. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if that's getting in your way, like we need to talk about that stuff first. And we need to talk about how the fact that you feel like you're a failure isn't because you're a failure and it's not your job to fix yourself to become not a failure, let's understand what the forces are that are working on you that have led you to this belief that because you haven't achieved X, Y, or Z, you're a failure. Only by stripping that away can we actually realize, oh, I am so not a failure. I am amazing. Or I've accomplished (laughs) so much. Like just acknowledging getting to wherever you are in life, business, work, relationships, family, is incredible like this this journey right that we're on wherever you've gotten to is amazing and we can keep growing but we're not going to be very effective at it if we continue to lean on these beliefs that just lead us to feel like we're not worthy we're not good enough we're failures so yeah so i just i desperately wanted to be able to lift some of that stuff up. And you know, I write about it all the time, I podcast about it all the time, but this is, at least to this point, the most comprehensive 
like start to finish, let's strip this stuff away <laughs> piece of work that I've done. I mean, it's the beautiful thing about having 60,000 words to work with <laughs> is uh, no, no one's saying, hey, why don't you cut that? Why don't you cut that? It's like, no, we're going to go all in. We're going to really focus on, on what's going on here. And uh, then we'll get to asking you what you might want for the future. Mm. I'm so excited. I will definitely be getting my pre-order going and I will make sure we share links in the show notes so that awesome. other folks can also do that. That sounds really helpful. Thanks. Yeah. I love, I was thinking as you were describing this kind of, you're not a failure, you're awesome. When I think of the tagline of your podcast, surviving the 21st century economy with your humanity intact, to me, that's a great metric. Like if you've done that, <laughs> you are a huge success because- yes. We're up against so much stress and so much that we're taught is just on us. And I'll, and even just having a lot of friends and family who live in, say, Canada or somewhere that's close but different, you mm -hmm. can really feel that tangible difference of there's a lot of daily stressors they just don't have yeah. that we have to think about. So if you still have your humanity intact and you're here and you're <laughs> working through it, it's an accomplishment. And I really appreciate everything you put into the world that supports doing that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, well, Tara, I know we have to wrap up. Is there anything I didn't ask you or that you want to add before we close today's interview? No, I don't think so. I loved your questions and uh, you got me thinking about some things that I, maybe not that I haven't thought about, but definitely not that I haven't expressed before. So I appreciate that. Mm, sweet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and doing this interview. It was really fun to talk to you and I can't wait to see your book and I'm sure there will be more in the future as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Space Beyond Scarce. If you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps out a new podcaster. Thank you.